Section 19 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books Henry Fielding This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org Read by Dennis Sayers Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books Edited by Charles W. Eliot Preface to Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Henry Fielding, dramatist, novelist, and judge, was born near Glastonbury, Somersetshire, April twenty second, seventeen o seven, and died at Lisbon, October eighth, seventeen fifty four. Though seldom spoken of as an essayist, Fielding scattered through his novels a large number of detached or detachable discussions, which are essentially essays, of which the preface to Joseph Andrews, on the comic, epic, and prose, is a favorable specimen. The novel which it introduces was begun as a parody on Richardson's Pamela, and the preface gives Fielding's conception of this form of fiction. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Preface. The Comic Epic in Prose. As it is possible the mere English reader may have a different idea of romance with the author of these little volumes, and may consequently expect a kind of entertainment not to be found, nor which was even intended in the following pages, it may not be improper to premise a few words concerning this kind of writing, which I do not remember to have seen hitherto attempted in our language. The epic, as well as the drama, is divided into tragedy and comedy. Homer, who was the father of this species of poetry, gave us the pattern of both of these, though that of the latter kind is entirely lost, which Aristotle tells us bore the same relation to comedy which his Iliad bears to tragedy, and perhaps that we have no more instances of it among the writers of antiquity, is owing to the loss of this great pattern, which, had it survived, would have found its imitators equally with the other poems of this great original. And farther, as this poetry may be tragic or comic, I will not scruple to say it may be likewise either in verse or prose. For though it wants one particular, which the critic enumerates in the constituent parts of an epic poem, namely metre, yet when any kind of writing contains all its other parts, such as fable, action, characters, sentiments, and diction, and is deficient in metre only, it seems, I think, reasonable to refer it to the epic, at least as no critic hath thought proper, to range it under any other head, nor to assign it a particular name to itself. Thus the Telemachus of the Archbishop of Cambrai appears to me of the epic kind, as well as the Odyssey of Homer. Indeed, it is much fairer and more reasonable to give it a name common with that species from which it differs only in a single instance than to confound it with those which it resembles in no other. Such are those voluminous works commonly called romances, namely, 
Clelia, Cleopatra, Astria, Cassandra, the Grand Cyrus, and innumerable others which contain, as I apprehend, very little instruction or entertainment. Now, a comic romance is a comic epic poem in prose, differing from comedy as the serious epic from tragedy, its action being more extended and comprehensive, containing a much larger circle of incidents, and introducing a greater variety of characters. It differs from the serious romance in its fable and action. In this, that as in the one these are grave and solemn, so in the other they are light and ridiculous. It differs in its characters by introducing persons of inferior rank, and, consequently, of inferior manners, whereas the grave romance sets the highest before us. Lastly, in its sentiments and diction, by preserving the ludicrous instead of the sublime. In the diction, I think, burlesque itself may be sometimes admitted, of which many instances will occur in this work, as in the description of the battles, and some other places not necessary to be pointed out to the classical reader, for whose entertainment those parodies, or burlesque imitations, are chiefly calculated. But though we have sometimes admitted this in our diction, we have carefully excluded it from our sentiments and characters, for there it is never properly introduced, unless in writings of the burlesque kind, which this is not intended to be. Indeed, no two species of writing can differ more widely than the comic and the burlesque, for as the latter is ever the exhibition of what is monstrous and unnatural, and where our delight, if we examine it, arises from the surprising absurdity, as in appropriating the manners of the highest to the lowest, or a converso. So, in the former, we should ever confine ourselves strictly to nature, from the just imitation of which will flow all the pleasure we can this way convey to a sensible reader. And perhaps there is one reason why a comic writer should of all others be the least excused for deviating from nature, since it may not be always so easy for a serious poet to meet with the great and the admirable. But life everywhere furnishes an accurate observer with the ridiculous. I have hinted this little concerning burlesque, because I have often heard that name given to performances, which have been truly of the comic kind, from the author's having sometimes admitted it in his diction only, which, as it is the dress of poetry, doth, like the dress of men, establish characters, the one of the whole poem, and the other of the whole man in vulgar opinion, beyond any of their greater excellences. But surely a certain grollery in style, where characters and sentiments are perfectly natural, no more constitutes the burlesque than an empty pomp and dignity of words, where everything else is mean and low, 
can entitle any performance to the appellation of the true sublime. And I apprehend my Lord Shaftesbury's opinion of mere burlesque agrees with mine, when he asserts there is no such thing to be found in the writings of the ancients. But perhaps I have less abhorrence than he professes for it, and that not because I have had some little success on the stage this way, but rather as it contributes more to exquisite mirth and laughter than any other, and these are probably more wholesome physic for the mind, and conduce better to perjure away spleen, melancholy, and ill affections than is generally imagined. Nay, I will appeal to common observation whether the same companies are not found more full of good humour and benevolence after they have been sweetened for two or three hours with entertainments of this kind, than soured by a tragedy or a grave lecture. But to illustrate all this by another science, in which perhaps we shall see the distinction more clearly and plainly, let us examine the works of a comic history painter, with those performances which the Italians call caricatura, where we shall find the greatest excellence of the former to consist in the exactest copy of nature, insomuch that a judicious eye instantly rejects anything outré, any liberty which the painter hath taken with the features of that alma mater, whereas in the caricatura we allow all license. Its aim is to exhibit monsters, not men, and all distortions and exaggerations, whatever, are within its proper province. Now, what caricatura is in painting, burlesque is in writing, and in the same manner the comic writer and painter correlate to each other. And here I shall observe that, as in the former, the painter seems to have the advantage, so it is in the latter, infinitely on the side of the writer, for the monstrous is much easier to paint than describe, and the ridiculous to describe than paint. And so, perhaps, this latter species doth not in either science so strongly affect and agitate the muscles as the other, yet it will be owned, I believe, that a more rational and useful picture arises to us from it. He who should call the ingenious Hogarth a burlesque painter would, in my opinion, do him very little honour, for sure it is much easier, much less the subject of admiration, to paint a man with a nose, or any other feature of a preposterous size, or to expose him in some absurd or monstrous attitude, than to express the affections of men on canvas. It hath been thought a vast commendation of a painter to say his figures seem to breathe, and surely it is a much greater and nobler applause that they appear to think. But to return, the ridiculous only, as I have before said, falls within my province in the present work, 
nor will some explanation of this word be thought impertinent by the reader if he considers how wonderfully it hath been mistaken even by writers who have professed it for to what but such a mistake can we attribute the many attempts to ridicule the blackest villainies and what is yet worse the most dreadful calamities what could exceed the absurdity of an author who should write the comedy of nero with the merry incident of ripping up his mother's belly or what would give a greater shock to humanity than an attempt to expose the miseries of poverty and distress to ridicule and yet the reader will not want much learning to suggest such instances to himself besides it may seem remarkable that aristotle who is so fond and free of definitions hath not thought proper to define the ridiculous indeed where he tells us it is proper to comedy he hath remarked that villainy is not its object but that he hath not as i remember positively asserted what is nor doth the abbe belgard who hath written a treatise on this subject though he shows us many species of it once trace it to its fountain the only source of the true ridiculous as it appears to me is affectation but though it arises from one spring only when we consider the infinite streams into which this one branches we shall presently cease to admire at the copious field it affords to an observer now affectation proceeds from one of these two causes vanity or hypocrisy for as vanity puts us on affecting false characters in order to purchase applause so hypocrisy sets us on an endeavour to avoid censure by concealing our vices under an appearance of their opposite virtues and though these two causes are often confounded for they require some distinguishing yet as they proceed from very different motives so they are as clearly distinct in their operations for indeed the affectation which arises from vanity is nearer to truth than the other as it hath not that violent repugnancy of nature to struggle with which that of the hypocrite hath it may be likewise noted that affectation doth not imply an absolute negation of those qualities which are affected and therefore though when it proceeds from hypocrisy it be nearly allied to deceit yet when it comes from vanity only it partakes of the nature of ostentation for instance the affectation of liberality in a vain man differs visibly from the same affectation in the avaricious for though the vain man is not what he would appear or hath not the virtue he affects to the degree he would be thought to have it yet it sits less awkwardly on him than on the avaricious man who is the very reverse of what he would seem to be from the discovery of this affectation arises the ridiculous which always strikes the reader with 
surprise, and pleasure, and that in a higher and stronger degree when the affectation arises from hypocrisy than when from vanity. For to discover any one to be the exact reverse of what he affects is more surprising and consequently more ridiculous than to find him a little deficient in the quality he desires the reputation of. I might observe that our Ben Johnson, who of all men understood the ridiculous the best, hath chiefly used the hypocritical affectation. Now, from affectation only, the misfortunes and calamities of life, or the imperfections of nature, may become the objects of ridicule. Surely he hath a very ill-framed mind, who can look on ugliness, infirmity, or poverty, as ridiculous in themselves. Nor do I believe any man living, who meets a dirty fellow riding through the streets in a cart, is struck with an idea of the ridiculous from it. But if he should see the same figure descend from his coach and six, or bolt from his chair with his hat under his arm, he would then begin to laugh, and with justice. In the same manner, were we to enter a poor house, and behold a wretched family shivering with cold and languishing with hunger, it would not incline us to laughter. At least we must have very diabolical natures, if it would. But should we discover there a great, instead of coals, adorned with flowers, empty plate or china dishes on the sideboard, or any other affectation of riches and finery, either on their persons or in their furniture, we might then be excused for ridiculing so fantastical an appearance. Much less are natural imperfections the object of derision, but when ugliness aims at the applause of beauty, or lameness endeavours to display agility, it is then that these unfortunate circumstances, which at first moved our compassion, tend only to raise our mirth. The poet carries this very far. None are for being what they are in fault, but for not being what they would be thought. Where, if the meter would suffer the word ridiculous to close the first line, the thought would be rather more proper. Great vices are the proper objects of our detestation, smaller faults of our pity. But affectation appears to me the only true source of the ridiculous. But perhaps it may be objected to me that I have against my own rules introduced vices, and of a very black kind, into this work. To this I shall answer, first, that it is very difficult to pursue a series of human actions and keep clear from them. Secondly, that the vices to be found here are rather the accidental consequences of some human frailty or foible, than causes habitually existing in the mind. Thirdly, that they are never set forth as the objects of ridicule, but detestation. Fourthly, 
that they are never the principal figure at that time of the scene. Lastly, they never produce the intended evil. End of section 19 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox.